If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. And this month's Where Did the Road Go? is sponsored by Super Inframan, Allison Cook, and Eric Hervin. Thank you all so very much for your incredible support. Transmission start. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go? Join us as we wander off the path and explore lost history, consciousness, the paranormal, unexplained mysteries, alternative thought, and much more. We are present on the web at wheredidtheroadgo.com. Now here is your host, Soraya. Welcome to this edition of Where Did the Road Go? And tonight I am joined once again by the Snake Brothers. How's it going? Thanks for having us. Yeah, glad to be here. Snake One and Snake Two. That's right. Snake Two here. Snake One. Right. <laughs> Sometimes I've heard the pseudonyms R- Russ. That would be me. And, and, That's uh, right. Um, what's the other one? Adam. Uh, hmm. Cattle? Is that what you said? Cattle. Oh, it's cattle Cal. now. Cal. Uh, no, that doesn't sound right. Joseph? No. I don't know. Just introduce yourselves. Well, this is Kyle. Snake 2. That's right. <laughs> and this going? is Russ. Yeah. And we do. We have the Brothers of the Serpent podcast. And we have uh, had Soraya on our show. And we have we've been coming on his show quite often. Not as often as recently. We've been doing a lot of trips, but we are glad to be here and uh, glad to be back on Where Did the Road Go, for sure. Yeah, I think I can blame your show for, like, I guess I now have this reputation for uh, completely not believing in uh, the missing 401, (laughs) (laughs) which is not the case. (laughs) But yeah, you are our resident scriptard on on those shows. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. I was trying to point to, uh, to problems that I see with it, but yeah. Well, there are problems with it. I mean, there but, are but, problems, but, but that's that's but with, not that's with anything. I mean, all of this yeah. stuff. There's there's different ways of looking at it. Yeah, and, that's right. Yep. Well, I don't agree with you guys. There's no problems. <laughs> yeah, I'm all in. <laughs> but we're not going to. talk no, about- yeah, the four one one episodes we did with you were great. Uh, and yeah, I I think that deep dives into these topics are required. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but tonight so really- we're gonna we're gonna start out talking about. Uh, Cremo and Thompson's work, which you you're in the midst of reading, and I've read a chunk of. Although I've I took the hard way uh, and got like the 800 page version of Forbidden Archaeology, and you guys did the smart thing and got the uh, the summary. Yes, the it's called the Hidden History of the Human Race, and it's basically their abridged version of Forbidden Archaeology. So it uh, they describe it in the intro to the book as being. Uh, the meat of the data without all the citations and various uh, geological arguments for or back and forths with various experts on why a certain strata is considered a certain age and things right, like that. Right. The, so uh, they took all that stuff out and sort of wrote a put it put in all the material for a more popular audience, and it's very good. Um, 
Didn't didn't Graham do that with one of his books too? Uh, like, he may have done that with Underworld. Was it Underworld? Uh, I thought it was Fingerprints of the Gods. I thought it might have been. Yeah, a he shorter version. It. It's possible. Yeah, I know that there was an abridged version of Underworld that I've seen, but mm. uh, I don't know if he did that on purpose or not. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, because Underworld was full of. I mean, Graham's work is on that kind of stuff. Is he does have all the citations and all the discussions oh, yeah. and everything? So yeah. Yeah, he pretty much has to. I mean, he's attacked so vehemently that, you know. Yeah, that's, that's right. That stuff just needs, and even when he puts it there, people still, you know, accuse him of making stuff up. Yeah, that's right. And so it's really, what's really fascinating, there's multiple facets of this particular work, Forbidden Archaeology and mm-hmm. or the Hidden History of the Human Race. But the things that stand out to me, aside from the anomalous discoveries, you know, and I, I even have a problem with that term because... To me, it's like, are the discoveries anomalous or are they just outside of the scope of current theory? Yeah. You know, I had this I had this saying back in the day, which was like, there's no such thing as out of place artifacts, only out of date theories. Right. That's nice. I like that. Like an out of an artifact is where it is. It's not out of place. It's right. (laughs) If it seems like you shouldn't if you think you shouldn't have found it there because of your preconceptions, then your preconceptions are wrong. (laughs) Um, So anyway, yeah. So so they're they're, you know, they're considered to be anomalous finds. A lot of them are old. Like so we're looking at late 1800s, early 1900s things. Uh, A lot of times right when uh, it's right in the period before certain specific standard model finds. uh became very accepted yeah such as such as java man uh you know or other various like precursor hominids so uh before those were found and became part of accepted theory of the evolution of uh late humans um or late hominid late stage hominids people were looking for the story you know, so it's basically like kind of after the idea of evolution has been accepted into this into the scientific community, but before they really had the story nailed down to something that they were uh, that everybody had agreed on. Yeah. So so people were free to look for the you know how early is man in the evolutionary story, uh, how far back does it go, and uh, so a lot of these interesting finds are being found in those periods, and now they're forgotten or discarded because they don't fit the model that people came up with later after the finds of Java men and, and various other hominids in Africa. Yeah. So I, I picked up the, uh, forbidden archeology span before I was doing where did the road go? And my, my mentality about these things is completely different now than it was then, because then, you know, I could only afford so many books. So picking up an 800 page book was like, good, this one will last me a while. <laughs> Whereas now where I'm trying to read, you know, one or two books a week, it's kind of like, oh, an 800 page book. I can't, I can't do that. That's way too much yeah. to read right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so I, uh, Thompson actually, uh, lived and went to uh, Binghamton university, which is only about an hour and a half away from me. Mm. He also wrote a book called Maya, the, the, you know, or the world is a uh, virtual reality or something to that effect, which I had read before I read, um, Forbidden Archaeology, which I never finished, by the way, but I did read a chunk of it. Uh, But the Maya book was great. And when I started doing Where Did the Road Go and started thinking like, what authors have I not heard 
you know, uh, people like Patrick Harper and uh, stuff like that, where I, who I then contacted and were like, why haven't you been on other shows? You know, I was like, oh, what about, what's, what's his first name? Thompson. Richard. 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 I'm like, yeah. what about Richard Thompson? I look him up and it's like, oh, oh, he lives in Binghamton. I'm like, awesome. Maybe I can do this face to face and he's dead. Okay. Never mind. Ah, yeah. Oh, man. Like he had passed away like a year earlier. And I'm like, really? So, yeah. uh, and then I realized, oh, he also co authored Cremo's book. Interesting. Um, yeah. But I like, I had Cremo on in the first handful of shows, actually. And it was, the first time that I was given questions to ask a guest and I, mm-hmm. I, I went through his publicity agent and they were like, okay, here's the questions. And I'm like the questions, but I, I have my own questions, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, what do I, and so I didn't, you know, I didn't make a list of questions. And when I got him on, I said, is do I, can we only talk about this stuff? And he's like, no. And I'm like, oh, I should have made a list. Ah, uh. <laughs> But that well, was, I'm glad that, yeah, I'm glad that he said no. That's good. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, he was open. To, we did talk about some other stuff, but I did run down the list of questions because that was from a new book I hadn't read yet. So I was kind of like, I'm curious about this stuff. But I like the fact that, you know, he, he approached this from a religious stance at first because the religious doctrine, he's what? Uh, it's some kind of Vedic thing, right? Yeah. Um, from my understanding, yeah. And they say that humans existed for like millions of years on this planet. Um, and yeah, he, the gist he, the gist that I got was from the intros to the book because they basically they they lay it all out. Um, both of them is that they they have a you know that they are they do have these beliefs and the beliefs basically say that humans have been part of the uh, plan for the universe since the beginning. Right. Right. So they have no problem. Number one, they don't have a problem with a very ancient universe. And number two, they think that however the old universe is, humans are just about as old because they've been part of the plan since the start. Right. Basically, right. it's, it's, it's a, a very huge generalization, I think. And it, it, it's also a consciousness first model, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, he, he went to, I guess he went to whatever guru he was, you know, who was teaching him. And he said, well, this this doesn't fit with the current science. Why is that? And he's like, I don't know. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe you need to look into the science and find out. And that's what forbidden archaeology came from. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, he said that Thompson was already doing a lot of the research and Thompson had gathered a whole bunch of materials, asked Cremo to join him on the, the, you know, the whole thing and saying like, can you compile this material into a book? Um, So I think that Thompson wasn't, much I, I don't I don't know this for sure, but the basic idea I got from reading how they described the the process was that Thompson did a was doing the research in the background, but Cremo is the one that made it into a book. Um, mm, okay, but yeah, he makes him into a co-author. I'm not sure how much Thompson actually wrote. Uh, I think because the idea that I get from the intro of the book is that Thompson got Cremo to said like 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 can you turn this into a book? Right, right, uh, yeah. Uh, and then they had research assistants too. They talk about having assistance because they're like, yeah, can you go track this down or see if you can? Cause I mean, you know, that they talk a lot. They're like, we're all right. We're looking at this paper and in the paper, there are references, right? The person makes a single, there's like a single line in this paper that sort of is dismissive towards some object or some artifact or some ancient bone. You know, they're like, Oh yeah, the Fox hall jaw, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then there'll be a reference and they're like, okay, they try, let's track down this citation. And then they find that thing. And then they find more dismissive comments but more citations, and then they eventually are looking at like the 
they've tracked down the, the the minutes from a meeting in Paris about you know it's like of scientists talking about this thing and they're like wow this is actually a really interesting case so they're following these lines of evidence uh, from more recent papers back to things that are a hundred years ago or more where scientists were actually debating about these objects and uh, I don't know the whole research process was really interesting and they get into epistemology and how do we know what we know right uh, they discuss that in the book they're like here's here's how we think about this like how how can we how can we look at evidence where the only evidence we have left because so much time has passed are the discussions people had about it right it's no longer possible to go to the site because it's underwater or it's been eroded away or whatever. You know, there's multiple reasons why an archaeological site will no longer exist uh, after 150 years. Uh, and then he's like, and then the object itself has vanished because it passed through multiple hands and you can't track it down anymore. Or it used to be in some museum, but they tell you they've never had it. And all the records say that they did. Yeah. And so the trail just goes cold. So all we have are words of various anthropologists and geologists and even lay people or uh, informed lay people like doctors, you know, like sometimes it's like a, a doctor who is also a fossil collector finds something, you know. Uh, right. So you have all these words of all these people and they're arguing with each other about it and that's all the evidence we have left of this thing. So you're like, okay, it's very well cited in the fact that all these people agreed that this artifact existed. But we can't study the artifact itself and we can't even go to the site where it was found anymore. So how do we treat these cases? Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting is he says a lot of times people, modern scientists or I mean, not even, not just modern, but you know, people back during when, when this was happening, would use all these facts to discard this evidence saying, well, the thing no longer exists. It was probably a hoax in the first place. Uh, we can't study it. So that means we don't need to consider it. And he points and they'll say, they take pains to point out how often there are very accepted artifacts, bones, or whatever that are part of the standard model that have the same problem. They no longer exist. The yes. site can't be gone back to. They were dug up by people who were not scientists, and yet they're fully accepted and are always put in the textbooks. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's, and, as, yeah. Lo as long yeah. as it fits the, the model that, that, they're, that they accept, the evidence doesn't have to be good. Yeah, and Kyle made a great point on our show when we were talking. About, he was like, "This is the problem with uh, what? How did you say it? You were t we were talking about, you know, extraordinary evidence. You go through that that thought process. Um, I don't remember what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So, so the whole <laughs> thing, like you know, where they say, well, extraordinary evidence or extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, right? That's the first thing they'll say when you like you're like, okay, I found a gold chain and a piece of coal. And the standard model says this piece of coal can, is is in strata that's 240 million years old, and yet here we have this object. So that so right. that suggests that uh, a claim that's not extraordinary doesn't require extraordinary evidence. Yeah. So the yeah. Op, Kyle was saying, well, the ops, the pro, like we have a problem with this because who gets to to decide what is extraordinary and what isn't? Yeah. Yeah. But the uh, but Kyle was pointing out that the problem is is that they also use it in reverse. In other words, if they say, well, this, this claim isn't extraordinary, so it doesn't require extraordinary evidence, and often that means it can be very, very sloppy evidence. Yes, yes. Yeah. Right? So it's a, it's a double-edged sword. That, whole, that, 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 that statement is, is terrible, I think, for the pursuit of science. Yeah. Like, evidence needs to be treated the same. No matter what. Yeah. Like, if, you, if, 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 it, if, it, if something fits within your theoretical preconceptions, it still needs to be treated just as rigorous or as not rigorous as stuff that doesn't, right? Yeah. 
So you don't get to say, well, we accept this because it fits and therefore we don't need to ask a whole lot of questions about it. But this other thing that has just as good of a provenance as that as the thing that does fit, well, we're going to ask a lot more questions about this because it doesn't fit our theory. That's not the right way to do this. No, not at all. And that's a big thing that's happening in this book when we're going through it. You see this over and over and over that the only reason that they discard it is really because of a priori preconceptions that are theoretical. You know. Yeah, and the other trend that you see is, you know, it, it, depending on the the nature of the find, um, say it's found in some layer of strata that is known to be a certain age. Well, if the find was maybe the the details or the data around the actual find and how it was found are not that good, then they disregard the fa- the idea that it was in that strata. Yes. Now, if the if the details of the find are really well documented and there were multiple people that saw it and it was in C2 in the layers, then they attack the geology. They say, well, it must not those layers must not be that old. Yeah. You know, it's just it's they they pick whatever they can they think is maybe the weakest evidence. And they 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 just assume that that evidence is incorrect or that that, that they can change the story there. Yeah. It happens over and over. Yeah. Or they'll say, well, okay, so you found this skull or say, you know, you found a piece of a skull here or perhaps it's a, like a stone implement, you know, and they'll say, well, the fact that this stone implement is what we consider to be an advanced stone implement means that it can't possibly be as old as the implication of the strata that it's in. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. like. Yeah, they'll just they'll just say, well, that must mean that this strata has actually been rewashed and redeposited. Yeah, that's that's what I mean. They, yeah. they go after the geo the, the geological placement. They're yeah. just like, well, then it must have been stirred up without yeah. ever going to the site to see it. Like at the time, they're just they they just say, well, the strata wasn't that old then, or it was mixed up. Yeah, how, and how do you think cataclysm plays into all this? Oh man, that's been a big part of the discussion we've had on our show is because we're Kyle and I are are, you know, obviously and we're studying with Randall, you know, with the Cosmographia podcast, we're studying with him about cataclysmic episodes and the idea of what Randall calls punctuated equilibrium. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which is I'm sure you've heard the term, but it's yeah. basically like that, you know, that the that the idea of uniformitarianism in geology is is basically that's the that's what's happening most of the time. And you have small cataclysms like local ones. But right, every once right. in a while, you have very large cataclysms that are global in scope or at least multiple regions in scope. So an entire hemisphere, perhaps. Right. And those are those events are big enough and energetic enough to really stir things up, including large parts of the surface, to move enormous amounts of material, material from one part of the surface to another. Uh, or to, you know, if it's, if it's a volcanic event like the thing that caused the Deccan Traps or, say, the Yellowstone uh, supervolcano... Where it, when that breaks open, it deposits enormous amounts of material in very short amount of times, geologically speaking. So when we're looking at some of these things, we're just like, well, maybe this, you know, if you if you inject uh, frequent, geologically speaking, frequent large cataclysms into the story here, perhaps some of this strata isn't as old as the standard model uh, says, because the standard model in geology, at the very least, is basically uniformitarian all the way down you right. know they do now accept large cataclysmic events like the um the the uh, kt event the thing that killed the dinosaurs yep um and that but i mean that argument is very recent if you think about it well i mean they just basically settled it like within the last 
six months or something. That's right. I remember, yeah. You know, we all thought, oh, yeah, you know, the comet killed the dinosaurs or whatever it was, an asteroid. That was actually heavily debated up until just like uh, within the last year. Well, yeah, that's right. I yeah. remember well, seeing a story that was like, okay, it's finally settled. Yeah. Did, like, didn't, didn't they say that the comet didn't completely kill the dinosaurs, but it, it, it definitely was sort of the beginning of the end? Yeah, it's that it's they they describe it as being you know the death blow that begins the dying, but not it doesn't kill everything obviously. Yeah. But it, what it does is it is it erases enough of the habitat to where um, the large species you know, and it's 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 interesting because cataclysmic events, the you can view it as like the the uh, I don't know. There's a correlation between the power or energy of the event and the uh, the extinction amounts of the species that are involved, or the, the species that are involved in the extinction. So that it's the biggest species that die first, usually. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so a weaker cataclysmic event will kill the the species that are the largest and have the fewest members. Therefore, usually, right. Uh, the smaller the species in size, the more of them there usually are. So bugs have a no, you know, bugs can survive. Ants don't have a problem. Sure. But it'll kill all the dinosaurs or in like the most recent case, the younger dryas, it kills the mammoths and it kills the, what they call the megafauna. Yeah. It kills everything big because those are the ones that either can't hide or have nowhere to go, you know, uh, they require lots of, and they require enormous amounts of sustenance from the, from the ecosystem. And when the ecosystem is totally overturned, they have a lot harder time feeding themselves. You know, so, so, and and of course you have the evolution of dinosaurs into birds too. Yeah, or it's it's like they are birds, and I don't know. Yeah, there's something weird going on there, and they're still debating that. Like, were dinosaurs really more bird than lizard? You know, yeah. than than reptile? I don't know. I'm a snake. They're probably they're probably <laughs> both. <laughs> Do you? Are you? I'm, a, a, I'm are, on the I'm on the lizards. I'm on the side of the lizards. Are, are, are you? So. A, are you a feathered serpent? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Which I guess that that you know the idea of dinosaurs having feathers and the feathered serpent and all that. I mean, we yeah, have wh- we what have is that. Yeah, we have the occasional cases of people having seen or reported dinosaurs not only in modern times but in ancient cultures too. Yeah, I don't. You know, and I I've wondered like, and this is probably a better question for uh, for you or many of your other guests is like, is that, is this a paranormal encounter? Right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've, you know, one of the, I've listened to where did the road go for years. And one question I've always wanted to ask is like, where are the, like, I don't know, the, the Neanderthal ghosts, how come all the ghosts we have are pretty recent? You know, are there, are there ghosts that are like really old, 12,000 years old? I I, I think you first have to define ghost. Yeah. So if you're talking, you know, when you I think, I think they grow up. If, if, no, if you're ta- if you're ta- <laughs> if you're talking about recording like uh, like a stone tape theory type of thing where you're seeing a replay of a past event, um, there are cases where people have seen like Roman soldiers marching, but they're actually what is it above or below the ground wherever the ground level was at the yeah, time. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So it's like, but that just seems to be a replay. It's like almost like that information was somehow encoded into the environment strongly and certain people can, can access it. Yeah. So the question there is like, how long does the tape last? Right. 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 Okay. And, and probably until something disrupts it. Mm. But seriously, if you think about it as a type of rebirth, right? Um, let's say 
like one of the ways I've I've imagined, you know, death is uh, almost like going to sleep, where like like you're beginning a dream and you're kind of just going along with whatever's happening in the dream. You know, is this a an indicator of kind of what it's like? You're just born into this world and you have no idea what is going on and you're just just doing whatever is taking place. And at some point, you start to realize, like, uh, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, you start to have the, you, you start to gain the ego and start to think about self. Right. And then you start to learn a little bit more about your environment and how to interact with it. And, you know, maybe ghosts um, are more modern because they are, you know, they're still figuring out the world. They're children in that world. Still with uh, so a lot of serious memories, like like most of their memories, most of their mind is still in the physical world. So they're concerned with all of this physical stuff. And eventually as they... That's what you mean by they grow up. That's what I mean. Eventually as they, they, they learn to uh, interact and become more mature in that world, they're like, oh, I, got, I, got, I have limbs, I can walk. And then, and then it's like, oh yeah, why am I hanging around here anymore? Let's, uh, <laughs> right. let's go check out the entire everything. Yeah. But you're, and yeah, that's good. And and Soraya, to your question on what is a ghost, I just meant like you know when you see an apparition, uh, when somebody sees an any apparition without defining what that really is, like do well, people see Neanderthal? You no, know? but they... but I think you know like it's hard to say what a ghost is. The reason I asked the question is, I mean, are you talking about the spirit of a dead person? Are you talking about know. a recording yeah. in the in the the ether or in the stone tape theory? What however this stuff records itself. Or are you talking like a uh, completely different spirit that is I, pretending to be something? I mean, there, there's so yeah, many different yeah, ways to look okay. at this. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just wondering, has anyone seen something where they're like, that's a ghost of a mammoth? Or, I mean, do people, I mean, people see ghosts of animals, right? Do they, does that happen? Yes. Do they, yes. So I guess what I'm asking is, is whatever the ghost might be, whatever it may, whatever its mechanism is, I don't know. But do people report things where you're like, wow, that's a... You know, that's an ancient thing. Like, that's a ghost of a brontosaurus or whatever. Um, um, no, but you have the time slip phenomena. Okay, yeah. You know, where people suddenly are looking into what seems to be, a, you know, a prehistoric scene or whatever. And, you know, like, and it does seem to match up with what we think at the time, which is interesting. Yeah. And I, I guess you're right, because you mentioned, you know, Roman soldiers marching where they're, like, waist deep in the dirt. Uh, and, uh, I'd imagine that if there are dinosaur ghosts, most of them would be appearing probably maybe deep under the layers that we have <laughs> well, <laughs> where they're true, marching true. around in the sky. Yeah. They could be up in the sky <laughs> in some cases or down under the water. Good point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do, so I, I remember, Man, that's, that's really weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, Man, T-Rex is running around in the ocean, man. This is a great. That's a great yeah. mental image. And, 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 you know, what's, what's, what's the Loch Ness Monster? I mean, there's no good, good kind of like Bigfoot, there's, there's no real suitable habitat for a large creature like that in Loch Ness. Yeah. But yet we've had reporting, you know, reports of this thing going back through the ages. So is that a ghost? You know, I mean, there, there are plenty of reports that seem that it's sort of morphic. Well, isn't Loch Ness impact related? Or it's glacier related, right? Isn't it a carved... Know. I can't remember, but yeah, uh, we need a, we need a watcher. Yeah, we need a. Where's our watcher? Let me, let me pull this. <laughs> All right, you be the watcher. <laughs> I'm gonna look. Kyle's gonna up. find out what where I the. I'm pretty is. sure that a lot of these. I I I seem to remember. Maybe it was Randall saying this. I I can't put this these words in his mouth, but 
I remember hearing something along the lines of a lot of these lakes where strange creatures oh, are yeah. seen are their impact related lakes. Really? In almost every case. That's right. There is a uh, water serpent uh, sort of imagery associated with a lot of lakes that may have. And, and I think the idea. Lake. Yeah, I think the idea was that this this is a memory uh, and I'm not talking about the the apparition of some being, but but that the idea that there's a serpent in the water is mm. a, a is actually a memory from our ancestors who may or may not have witnessed or heard about or witnessed the the impact itself. So the serpent in the sky comes down and creates the lake, and that's where the legend of the serpent in the lake comes from. Gotcha, gotcha. And now that energy has a form. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Okay, so Loch Ness lies along the Great Glen Fault, which forms a line of weakness in the rocks, which have been excavated by glacial erosion. So here's the thing about fault lines. Uh, fault lines create earthquake lights and are very common for UFO sightings. Yeah, so no. it makes sense that you would also have monster sightings because, I mean, it makes sense if you're not assuming UFOs are extraterrestrial. If you're assuming that this stuff is some form of energy that is possibly generated by the Earth, uh, even if something is taking that energy and manipulating it, um, yeah. it would make sense that you would get the monster sighting along a fault line. Yeah, there we go. Mystery solved, folks. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, that, and we're it, done. And that's, yeah, right. <laughs> Show over. We can we can we can wrap this podcast up. Uh, but no, I, and I'm also thinking. You know, it's excavated by glacial erosion. I wonder how long ago. I don't want to dig too deep into this, but. Uh, yeah, I, I, I just going back to the ghost idea. If it's a ghost of a of an ancient creature, it doesn't have to be dinosaur. It could no. be, you know, a couple hundred thousand years old. There, there have been some very strange megafaunal creatures uh, fairly recently on the planet. I mean, really, you know, it's fascinating just to think about what North America was like before the end of the Younger Dryas. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, you got things like the four species of elephant. Yeah. You know, camels, horses, many, many species of horses, the giant sloth, the American Pleistocene lion, which was like the size of a freaking donkey or a pony. Imagine that a big cat that big that would be pretty <laughs> terrifying. And then they, you know, the short faced bear, cave bear, lots of very large. So uh, has some giant beaver too. I mean, yeah, there's giant beavers, <laughs> freaking 600 pounds. I mean, the small ones are a huge nuisance, you know, they yeah. build these gigantic dams and then you have one that's like, yeah gigantic building dams and cutting down <laughs> probably huge trees. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's, I don't know. That's yeah. So back to your, I guess taking it way back to your original question about, uh, how does cataclysm fit into the stuff that we're going through in <laughs> hidden history of the human race or forbidden archeology. Um, I think the, so the, uh, it's interesting because the authors, in addition to laying out their, um, I guess you would say religious preconceptions at the beginning of the book. They, you know, they're like, we're with this Vedic type of institute and mm -hmm. we look at the world this way, but we're really just trying to look at the science here. We do not have a problem with humans being very ancient. They also say that we fully admit that many of these finds may imply that the stratigraphic dating that is commonly accepted in standard model geology may need to be completely rethought rather than saying these objects are incredibly ancient. Right. Right. Um, so, and then they just say, but what, what we're going to do is use the commonly accepted names for various geological eras and ages and epochs and the timescales that those are 
commonly said to have as a starting point. You know, we're just going to go with that. So we'll say they'll they'll tell you like this object was found here or this bone was found in this strata. We contacted the you know the geological survey of that state or of that of that country, and they said that that strata is dated to this t- to this time. Uh, yeah, and it's and, and you know and, and when you start looking at things like the really anomalous finds where they're talking about uh, ma- massive um, block walls discovered in coal mines in yeah. Iowa or whatever that are two miles below the surface. Uh, in coal that's supposed to be 340 million years old. Right. <laughs> You're just like, okay. Did, didn't they rebury that or something? Yeah, the, according to the story, the, the so the guy said, the, it was an, and it was an affidavit, so it was like, you know, the guy swore to this, but basically according to the story is, um, the coal mine was, that they had to go down an elevator, they pumped air down to him, and they would go down there, and he said he set off charges, in his particular room. So that down at the bottom of the shaft, they had a long drift, which is the horizontal tunnel, and every every worker had a separate room and that they were working. And they would go in there and very carefully set charges to sort and then they would all leave and then set the charges off and they'd wait a, a couple of days for it to clear. Then they'd go back down in there and start clearing out the coal that they had blown off the walls mm-hmm. and loading it up and stuff and shoring up the room. And he said he did that and he went back down and he was starting to timber up the room, but he found these big cube he like he found these one foot uh, on a side cubes that he said had mirror sides but he broke one open with his pick and he said it was concrete on the inside it was like gravel and an aggregate but they had, it had been polished right and there were several of them lying around and then he said that the room started to collapse on him and he barely got out with his life and then when he went back in he saw that the coal face had basically fallen off a whole wall of these things yeah yeah, and man. that 130 feet farther down the uh, the the horizontal the drift, you know, in a different room, another miner had also encountered either the same wall or a different one made of the same type of cubes, and that yeah, they pulled them all out of the mine and shut it down and sc- and told them you know basically don't talk about this, and they sent them to different mines in different states. Huh. That that was that story, and I'm just like, man, this mine is still there. Right. Somebody needs to go down there and find this thing. <laughs> well, there's also the controversy about the wall in Texas there. Oh, yeah, Rockwall. Rockwall, yeah, which, I mean, I know they did, uh, who was it that had the TV show where they investigated it? Uh, like, yeah, dang it. America um, on Earth? Yes. Yeah, yeah it was America yeah. on Earth. Um, yeah, I can't remember the guy's name. And he I know it. And, and, yeah, I, I know it too, and I can't remember it. Yeah. But he supposedly, you know, did testing on it and said it was natural and all this other stuff. And other people are like, he didn't test the actual wall. Like he tested a part of the the what may have been the wall, but not like the main segment that everyone agreed was definitely the wall or something like that. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And he, and I mean, it's sort of under Scott Walter. Scott Walter. That's it. There. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, and I, you know, I don't want to argue too much against Scott. I mean, I'll argue this. Look, this is the problem <laughs> I got with it. He, if he, he uncovers a portion of the wall, right? Uses a local that, that, and the guy has a big excavation company and he's like, yeah, let's, let's, let's dig it up. I know where uh, an outcrop is. Right. So they dig up a giant face of the wall. And then, you know, he, do, he takes drill cores out of multiple different blocks and then he has them tested for the the magnetic alignments of the, you know, basically when the rock was formed, you're going to have all these, you know, magnetic particles in the rock all facing 
north or whatever. Basically, right. they're going to be aligned to, the, to, the, to, the, to yeah. the magnetic field of the Earth during the formation of the rock. Yes. And so the argument was that every different core that he took, the alignment was the same. Yeah. Meaning that this was a natural formation, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, that people won't build a wall... Well, if they're quarrying, if they're quarrying rock, the rocks are going to be flipped, and they're going to, and so the the alignments will be all in different, oriented in different directions, right? Yeah. That's the argument. So there's two things. First of all, there's a lot of stuff about ancient masons that we don't know, we don't understand how they did certain things, and they built walls in ways that we would never, that we don't do today. So there is yeah. the possibility that that actually was a concern, and I think there is some evidence that. Uh, very well known and accepted um, stone wall constructions have all the alignments in the same direction. Yeah, that they're aligned to the earth. But yeah. the other argument is that this is maybe partially a, a natural formation that was utilized and and um, altered mm-hmm. by by people, by intelligent beings. Right. We also see that yes. where they they take a natural thing and then they alter it. And there are strange things built into that wall that look like uh, lintel stones and windows and archways. And That's so, what you need to check. Right. And in some yeah. cases, I mean, there are pictures, you know, uh, of not that section that they dug up specifically, but older pictures that are in newspapers. We got sent a bunch of this material by somebody who lives there that we had on our show where the blocks have bevels. They're beveled all the way around on the yeah. faces, you know, and that, mm. that just doesn't happen on a natural object. Right. At least. Um, I mean, and now, so it may be a natural object where they just went in and it was already sort of fractured and all that and to look like a wall. And then they beveled all the fractures that, but that doesn't mean, but that still means that somebody worked on it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 So I guess I don't think it's conclusive. It, it's suggestive for sure. Yeah. The, the yeah. evidence that, that he, he tested that Scott, you know, got from that, from those cores, but it's not conclusive. Right. And the other thing is, is the. Uh, and this is a bit more of, you know, so there, then of course the, the question becomes, well, what is it if it's a natural formation and they try to say, what is it called? A, a sand dike. A sand dike. Now. Sandstone dike. Yeah. Sandstone dike, which is basically the fort, the, 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 for, the geological concept here is you have some sedimentary layer that's, that cracks, it splits open on, near this on the surface. And, and then, then eventually that crack gets material. filled in with different material and that material lithifies, turns into stone. Right, and then later people or erosion or whatever comes along and starts working at that, and the material that filled in the crack is a little bit harder and of a different composition, and so the stuff around it erodes faster, and so you end up with this thing that might look like a wall. Well, we we looked up a bunch of sandstone dikes, and they don't look anything like this. Okay, you know they, they have very naturally looking. <laughs> they look natural, and they're not straight, and they, you know, they they I don't know. It, it's in other words, if it is that kind of formation, it's unique and worthy of study just by that just by that fact. Um, but they, but because it has this sort of stigma around it that it might be a natural artifact and very very old, and in the Americas, you know that's that's three strikes against it. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah, it, they don't they don't want to look at it. If I'm remembering right, there are stone rings that all the stones are aligned magnetically the same way. Yeah, that sounds familiar. I mean, I, again, I can't, Kyle's right. I can't think offhand of any of any specific sites, but I do remember reading about magnetic alignments that are, you know, where they're all aligned the same way. 
Yeah, that, that, so. which, which means they had some intuition or some way of testing that when they aligned these stone circles. That's right. Because I'm sure yeah. there's – I want to say Aveberry is one of the ones they've tested and found that all the stones have the same like alignment on them. Yeah. So either that yeah, I seem or to they, remember something about it with Karnak, possibly. I can't remember. Either that, uh, either they, they had a way of determining the alignment or they were able to change the magnetic field of the stones. Yeah, now that's a really interesting idea. Um, like uh, some of the some stone artifacts seem to have magnetic hotspots built into them in specific places. I'm thinking maybe it's the Olmec heads that have this. Uh, don't quote me on that, but I think it is Olmec related stuff. Where basically they you know they've got these gigantic statues. They're not statues. They're humongous heads. sculptures of yeah. faces. Yeah. And they have like magnetic hotspots in specific areas, hmm. uh, and it's like, were they aware that those hotspots existed? Right, or did they somehow create them? Or create them, or did the process that they used to make those sculptures generate those hotspots? Also possible, yeah. Yeah, I re I remember seeing a uh, I don't know like a Discovery Channel sort of one of those debunking shows talking about the Olmec heads. And, you know, I mean, those things are, what, in excess of multiple tons, if I remember right. Yeah, they're huge, and they're made out of very hard, dense stone. So, you know, in the show, they would what they did is they, uh, they made one that was like a quarter of a ton. And they didn't actually make a head. They just took a block that was a quarter of a ton and showed that you could move this quarter-ton block from where they think they were quarried to where, you know, they found them. Without any kind of advanced technology. Oh, was that like Easter Island? Is that what you're talking about? No, no, it was a, it was the Olmec heads. Oh, okay. Because I, yeah, and, I know they did that same thing with the Easter Island heads too. It wobbled them back and forth to get them. To right. Move. Well, in in yeah. this case though, you know, they just with manpower moved these like, I don't know, like 500 pound blocks or whatever, and then <laughs> you know they had to put it on a raft and they had to you know the raft had to have enough displacement where it barely fit on the river they put it on. And, you know, they got it there and they're like, see, now we've proved how they moved them. I'm like, that's nowhere near the size of the ones they were moving. Yeah. Now, why, now, why did you take one of the, you know, I don't know, a five ton block and see <laughs> if you can do it that way? Yeah. Or 70 tons or whatever they actually yeah. weigh, right? Because, yeah, we've, I can't remember if we've ever said this on your show before, but Kyle and I have had many conversations. We both are, um, we're builders, you know, we do construction yeah. and we operate heavy machinery and we're familiar in some cases with moving heavy loads, not like the big guys do. You know, some some people move really enormous loads. Our dad moved a lot of, you know, worked with cranes and uh, moved heavy loads. And it's a big deal. And it doesn't scale. It's not a one-to-one -one scale. Yeah. Right? It's not a linear scale, I should say. Like moving, the difficulty of moving a one-ton block versus the difficulty of moving a 10-ton block, the 10-ton block is not 10 times harder. It's many, many, it's hundreds of times harder. Right. So in other words, it's not a linear scale. The difficulty doesn't scale in the same way. Like, so if you're going from moving a 10 ton block to a hundred ton block, that's not the, the hundred ton block is not only 10 times harder than the 10 ton block. Yeah. Yeah. It's way, it's, it's much, much more than that. And, and when you get, when the weights get enough, you begin to have material failure <laughs> Another like not only the, the material failure of the object you're trying to move. Yeah. Right. Like, in other words, if you've got a, a block with square edges, you've cut it nice and sharp, and it weighs 100 tons, and then you want to pick it up, 
you have to be very careful not to break those sharp corners off that block. Right. Because the edge, you know, because it, you're putting large, uh, like a, a large fraction of the weight of that block onto that corner, wherever your strap is going around, however you're picking it up, you know, you've got to be very careful. And then you have material failures and things, the things you're trying to use to move it, you know, so rolling a one ton block on like logs will work. But if you put a hundred ton block on those logs, the logs just fracture into pieces. They right. St right. They stop being able to, to hold the weight or the, you know, I don't know how, how, how much you want me to nerd out on this, but then you also have the problem of what is the thing that you're using to pick the block up with sitting on and can that hold the weight, <laughs> right? In other words, you've got to have a nice road base. If you're going to move it, you know, if you, you've seen the, um, everybody's seen pictures of the shuttle, you know, the back when we had a space shuttle when they used to move it, that gigantic machine they put it on. Oh yeah. You know what yeah. I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They put on that enormous machine to roll it from you know where they work on it to where they're going to launch it. They built that road for that machine to roll on very specifically. It has to hold that weight. Yeah. You know, so in a lot of places where these big blocks are, even if you can come up with all kinds of interesting ways for them to move blocks around, you got to have a road. And the roads don't exist in a lot of cases. <laughs> there are no roads from where they quarried the blocks to where the blocks are. Where, where did the road go then? The, where did the road go is the question. That's right. <laughs> I, I, I know there were also people who said, oh, we figured out how they built the pyramids. We built this little one. And, and yep. you know, we just scale those, those methods up and there you go. And I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah. Go 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 go! Build us something the size of the Great Pyramid with those blocks and that precision, and then I'll be convinced you figured it out. Yeah, and then they don't tell you that they ended up using heavy machinery and steel tools and right, you know, right. Yeah, <laughs> well, they do, but you have to dig a little deeper to find that out. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, the thing, right, well, the, th the thing that you get that you hear is that even with our our ability to build things today, we couldn't build the Great Pyramid. Yep. That's yeah. Right. <clears throat> so, all right i did some digging and i and yeah i did not find <laughs> anything about some watering yeah i was trying to find if like stone it's kind of hard to search for this but stone ancient stone constructions with the with magnetic alignments magnetic all. alignments in the stone yeah didn't find it so that yeah i don't know where i heard that but there, the only thing i found was one reference to it on uh, the human origin project where the where they state for example, certain stone circles may be aligned with the magnetic qualities of the stones. In some cases, the stones are laid out. They each point magnetically to the next stone in the circle. But, that's, of course, they don't tell you where. I think that's Avebury. Avebury, okay. yeah. So, well, yeah, I don't I don't know that for sure. But it, it doesn't seem implausible to me that that may have been a, a technique, yeah. right? Like, just because of so many of the other... <laughs> And insanely meticulous techniques that they use to lay some of these stone sites. And it may be possible to figure out magnetic stuff without any special equipment. You know, have we told Sarah, have we ever told you the magnet experiment that Kyle did on me? <laughs> I don't think Sarai? so. I don't think so. Okay. I bought a, like, I don't know how to pronounce it, but the neodymium magnet. Okay. Right? They're really strong, rare earth I magnets. bought, I bought a, they're about a, it's about a half inch bar magnet but i i had three of them so it made about a three inch magnetic bar and then i have an actual half inch steel bar they were 
when you close your eyes, they their sizes and the weights are basically the same when you're holding one in one hand and one in the other. But I was holding them and I'm like, this magnet feels different, <laughs> right? Huh. Why why does this magnet seem to feel different? Not in a in a strange way. And I'm just like, it's probably just because I know it's a magnet. And that I'm I'm just making this up. So I used Russ uh, to to run this experiment, and he he shows up down here. To, we're we're about to start the podcast or something, and I'm like, all right, hold your hands apart, close, close your eyes, close your eyes, hold your hands apart. And I'm gonna put something in your hands, and that so, takes trust, buddy. Yeah, he <laughs> he closes his eyes, he he holds his hands apart, and he he opens them up, and I put these two steel, you know, the the magnetic and the steel bar in one hand, and the magnetic one in the other, and. He's like sitting there with his eyes closed, and I'm like, "So what do you what do you think?" And he's just like moving them around, and then he's like, "This one feels weird, and it's huh. the magnet." Yeah, I was like, <laughs> "Yes, okay." <laughs> so like without any practice, right? It seems like so you can imagine maybe ancient people could cultivate if this is really a thing. Could people possibly cultivate the ability to detect magnetic fields? You know. Without any tools at all. Yeah, yeah. And there are, you know, uh, examples in nature, like certain birds. Uh, I can't remember what the um, the cells are called. Uh, oh man, Anne told us what they were. Yeah, I remember. Don't remember. She wrote us an email about this because yeah. we were talking. Anyway, they have some kind of chemical in their brain that that detects uh, magnetic or, fields, and yes, yeah. So yeah. they can they can follow magnetic field lines, right? Uh, Louis Proud wrote a book called. Uh, Oh, strange electromagnetic dimensions that talks about stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I imagine that. I imagine that most migrating creatures must have something like this. Yeah, yeah. And and humans, we don't really migrate, but you know, I, I mean, we've all met people who seem to have a compass in their head. They always know which direction they're facing. Right. You know, right. you can ask them at any, and they're like, "Yeah, north is over there." I mean, you know, they just know. And and other people don't. Like, I I don't have this. Like, my compass in my head is is not there. So I get lost all the time, but some people do have it. So I think it's stronger in other people. And yeah, there's something going on there. So possibly it's possible to cultivate this kind of thing, detecting the earth's magnetic field or detecting magnetic fields of objects. And then you have dowsing, which seems to interact with that, whether it's because the person is unconsciously picking up on the information or there's something about those rods, you know, using certain types of rods or trees that, that react to this stuff. Yeah, I, susp- I suspect it's the it's the fir- you know the former, right? Yeah, cri- what, cri- cryptochrome cri- is the name of the chemical. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a great name. Yeah, it's a good <laughs> band name. <laughs> yeah, it's a good band name. <laughs> but I mean, and I I was surprised when they were they were doing something in my yard. Uh, I forget what it was. Um, I think it was when my back basement kept flooding, and they were trying to figure out where it drained to. And this guy just picks up a stick and starts dowsing. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Huh. I, I didn't expect that. You want to come on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> he, he wasn't successful. So, you know. Okay. All right. But okay. Well, I, we have another story. Did we ever tell you Russ's dowsing story? I don't know. <laughs> he's, he's always been fascinated by the dowsing thing. And, and uh, we at work, we were having to dig up, we, we we're going to be running this big, um, electrical line and we needed to know where the water lines or the electric lines or whatever that were going across this area before we dug a trench right and, mm-hmm. and russ is like well 
we we hired these guys. They were coming out with an instrument and they were going to run it all through the yard and find in and mark all the paths of these pipes and and electric lines. And Russell's like, "Hey, man, this is my chance, right? <laughs> yeah, like, I'm like this is my chance to test this <laughs> because they're going to come out with actual equipment to find them, so I can go out here and douse it, <laughs> and then I'll mark what I find dowsing and I'll see if I'm right." <laughs> so he gets he makes himself some dowsing rods and he's out there and I'm I'm in the shop like working or whatever. He finally comes back in and he's like. I don't know, man. I can't do it. Yeah. I I'm like, what's, what's the deal? He's like, I didn't find anything. <laughs> I'm like, really? He's like, nothing. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so then the, the guys come out with the instrument and they start running around in the yard and there's nothing. <laughs> and they end up, <laughs> they end up finding out that the lines are in a completely different area that we did not expect. So I was like, dude, you succeeded. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was no false positive. It was like, <laughs> yeah. you didn't yeah. find anything because there was nothing there. <laughs> that 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 reminds me of the one time I felt like I actually projected out of body. Like I was conscious and I I, I was like, can I do this? And I, and I found myself up at that cliff where I've had weird things happen. And I said, but how do I know I'm here? How do I know I'm just not imagining it? And I'm like, wait. My friend wrote something on the tree the last time we were here, and I don't know what it was. I'm going to go look at the tree. And so <laughs> I float over to the tree, and there's nothing on the tree. And I'm like, okay, this is just my imagination. <laughs> and so like later, I'm talking to him. I'm like, by the way, what did you write on the tree the other day? He's like, what? Oh, I couldn't think of anything, so I didn't write anything. <laughs> and I'm like, damn yes. it, now I don't know if I was there or not. Yeah. Well, we just consider that proof. That's that right. You were actually <laughs> there. Actual evidence that you were there. Uh, or at least picked up on the information. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause yeah I, I think so much of this. Right? You thought you, it, you expected there to be something on the tree and there right. wasn't. So could it have been, I mean, is that your imagination? Right. It's hard to say. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm saying information, you know, like it may not have actually been out of body, but was able to pick up the information from that area. Like, I think so much of this stuff is information-based, you know? Yeah. So, like, when yeah. you're dowsing, maybe it is that you're unconsciously picking up something, but maybe that, that stuff is literally just information. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Um, well, uh, I was going to say, do we take this back to Cremo? Or? Yeah, so one of the things I remember in the in the book was a, uh, a a modern human being found under, like, this piece of very solid rock that they had absolutely no doubts had to be there like however many millions of years. Is that part in the one you read? Yeah, well, okay. So th th these kinds of discoveries are always debated and somebody doesn't believe them, right? But mm -hmm. like uh, the finds in, for example, the, uh, the tabletop mountain gold mines, were very interesting and that and in a lot of cases they would find artifacts plus the bones you know and in one case it was like the bones plus the artifacts plus like like lying on the ground what what used to be like what they call a paleo surface right so it's a very ancient ground surface that is now basically underneath the mountain but the mountain is really a, a butte it's a large sediment deposit that's later been eroded away into uh, a butte uh, like a mesa Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. So they find uh, there's like a there's like a um, a petrified tree, and bones, and all these spear points. On this, on what used to be the ground surface underneath this mesa, 
where they were dig- where they were mining for gold. But there's yeah, there's no. The thing is, is that there's no no one's disputing the idea that this was once the ground surface. Right. So they're actually digging through river gravels and finding gold nuggets that used to be in the bottom of this river. Yeah. Mm. But now the the ancient riverbed has a mountain on top of it, basically. Yeah. This butte. So it's you know the and you know as an artifact hunter, you know where are you going to look for art, artifacts in or around water? Right. Right. Uh, stone or where there was water yeah yeah where where there was water so dry creek beds you know uh live creek beds whatever you, you can that's where that's where you go that's where they were and so it's not you know that's totally what you would expect to find if there were humans around at that time that's what's disputed is it like okay that this this basically this butte or this mountain that's on top of this ancient river is uh indicative that it's that the river itself is extremely old, but maybe not because of cataclysms, right? That's, right. That's the right. To, to get the mesa, you have to deposit enormous amounts of sediment over the entire landscape, and then you have to erode. And it then away. you have to put a bunch of water all around that area to erode it away to leave a mesa in that spot. Right. And so, and then the gold rush people were digging into the side. Down, they went down into a like a gully or a gorge at the side of the mesa, and were digging in. To, to the side of the of the mesa and going down and basically following what was the ancient surface before that mesa was there because there's an old riverbed there and a bunch of river gravel it's all cemented together at this point it's like hard as rock you know it's basically silts and uh, river cobbles that have been turned into a kind of cement so it isn't like digging through sand it's very uh it's it's very cemented and then they're finding gold nuggets in that because it's this ancient river had a gold source somewhere but they also started finding artifacts because this did used to be a surface. So the question becomes, you know, and the, the idea is, is the, this is tertiary uh, period uh, material. So that puts it at anywhere between 10 to I don't, I don't know, 50, 30 million to 50 million years old, depending on where it was. Hmm. So not only, you know, so again, we got multiple strikes against it. Like this is in the Americas, which it can't be that old. They're, they're anatomically modern bones. And very advanced tools. Uh, they don't like that for for even in Europe. If you found something that old, it would be you know it, that would be bad. And then the fact that it's so ancient, uh, due to the age that they think that strata is, that it puts it outside of the scope of human evolution entirely, or it basically puts modern humans back all the way back before what they think of as you know Homo erectus, like way before them. Right. Right. And it's possible that you could have had an anatomically uh, modern human at the same time as Homo erectus. Yeah, but they, the standard model does not accept that. Right. Yes, I completely agree. Yeah. And, and, you know, the question is, is like, as, as, so it's interesting to see the difference in what we know about the science now and what, what, not the science, but, you know, what the accepted concepts are now that, that, for example, Neanderthals were not so much a precursor to Homo sapiens sapiens, but yeah. we're, ne- we're actually like a brother species. We right. lived alongside them as opposed to them being our ancestors. Um, you know, in other words, that 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 Neanderthals lived with Homo sapiens sapiens. That not that Homo sapiens sapiens arose from Neanderthals, right? Right. Yeah. There's a, there's yeah. a big difference. And now we have like the Denisovans that were yep. also no one knows what they look like. We haven't found any remains of them yet, but they do exist in our genetics, and they also seem to be a uh, another like uh, brother species to Homo sapiens sapiens and the Neanderthals. 
And the human species, the Homo sapiens sapiens, have been pushed back to 200 to 300,000 years old. Yeah. Whereas when they were writing this book in the late 80s, 100,000 years old is what they thought. And if the advent of modern humans in Europe was 30,000 years ago, well, we've got caves with paintings in them now that are 40,000 years old in Europe. So that's been pushed back. Yep. So lots of these, these, like, you know, Graham Hancock is always saying, you know, things keep getting older. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what, it, what becomes apparent as you go through the book is it, it it's very similar to the, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the Clovis first thing. I mean, Graham talks yeah. about this yeah. a lot, right? They dig down, they find Clovis, they stop digging in, in the Americas because like that, you, That's the you've first. now found the first people. Yeah. Right. No, yeah. no point digging deep, deeper because there was nobody there. Don't dig any deeper. So now that's out. So now people are digging deeper. And of course, they're finding artifacts because yeah. Clovis was not first. Yeah. And that's now accepted. He was controversial for a long time. Um, well, even so the Clovis stuff was controversial for a long time. Yeah, yeah. If you go back far enough, the advent of humans into the Americas was thought to be only 5,000 years ago. Right. Right. Clovis. Clovis was then 12, you know, 10 to 12. And then they had to push it back to 15. And then they pushed it back a little bit more to 17. And now it's like, all right, there were people here before Clovis at 22 and 30. Right. Yeah. So what you right. see happening through the, through as, as, as like time develops from like the, the late 1800s through the, the early 1900s. And then after the pretty much, you know, the new accepted model of human, of human uh, development and evolution is the reverse of the Clovis first thing. Before that, they were digging in all these places and accepting and debating certain finds of Homo sapiens sapien bones, modern anatomically modern human bones. And then once they accepted this this other story, those finds were then thrown out, and nobody's digging or looking for human bones in any of these places. And there's no so that that's not even happening anymore. Yeah, right. You're not going to have an archaeologist come and dig through something that's that's uh you know 300 million years old yeah yeah because they're right. not going to find anything no yeah. <laughs> whether they do or not and if he and if he found a human bone he would probably hide it or something yeah know. or just <laughs> you know you, okay you know that got it must have cracked the surface cracked and it came yeah. out and then they just don't even put it in the literature so right right yeah <clears throat> yeah there's one guy when we were going through the artifact section um Basically, because they separate the book into sections. Like first, they go through. All right, like they're finding. We're looking at cut bones. Yeah, you know. Okay, and this is still. I mean, it's hotly debated even today. Like what constitute butchering marks on a bone as opposed to geological scrapes and scratches? Right. Um. Graham, so there's Graham all, talks I mean, a lot about that too in his latest book. Who yeah. does? Sorry, Graham. I, Graham. Oh, Graham does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's like we're nerding out on this on our show. And I'm like, how interesting is this to people? Because we're just like, oh, man, look at these scratches on this bone. <laughs> you know, it's like, is this really interesting to people? Yeah, it is. Uh, because it's telling us about our origins, possibly. Yeah. You know, and so and then and then the next section after that, after the bones section, animal bones section and butchering section is it moves to stone tools. And they separate it into what they call eoliths, paleoliths and neoliths, which are just simple terms that mean an eolith is like the very like a very rudimentary tool where you basically find a flint chip or maybe a, a piece of granite that's shaped already correctly for what you want to do which is like bang on something and cut it maybe right right maybe you make a few modifications but basically it's like you pick it up and you're like this rock is already the right shape for me to do what i want to do with it so the rock shows work 
Yeah. And the work is not working on the rock, but the but the work that you're doing with it. Yeah. So if you were cutting a bone with it, it's going to have an abrade, you know, the edge is going to be abraded. Yeah. Basically. Like you can look at it with a with just a magnifying glass and see that somebody has used this as a tool. Because one uh, just one edge, the sharp side is, you know, is has microscopic da- not microscopic but uh uh damage that requires close scrutiny but not a microscope to see. And then the next set is paleoliths where they have picked up chips and they've actually started to work modified them, them, modified them, you know, they're napping them into what we would think of as spear points or scrapers. And then the, the neoliths are the really advanced points that everybody thinks of when they think of an arrowhead, you know, the really beautiful pieces. Right. So bifacial, they've worked every part of the surface of the tool. Yeah. Made it real thin and just beautiful. Uh, and so, you know, when they're finding, so you've got these, these finds where, uh, they're finding something like um, like paleoliths, you know, say unifacials, where it's just been the the tool has only been worked on one side to make it a little sharper. And there are all these. It goes back and forth with these scientists who are saying, well, it's because it's in that ancient strata, that must have been the result of geological chipping. Mm, right, right. You know, and then of course the authors take pains to point out if this had been found in acceptable timescales in terms of the strata, no one would question that it's a human tool. Right. But because it's so, because it's found too deep or in a place where it can't be there, or, you know, it's underneath this layer of lava, which we know is too ancient for people who have been in this particular spot, or it isn't necessarily that there weren't people around yet, but it's too advanced for what we think people were doing at that time. It must be geological chipping even though it looks like a human artifact. Yeah, and a great example of that is a fossilized shoe, a piece of like a fossilized oh, yeah. shoe sole. Yeah. Really? I mean, it's it's a solid piece of rock, but it looks like the heel of a shoe sole. Mm. And they're like, you know, they're like... Yeah, okay, not a footprint, but the sole. The sole of, the of shoe. A, an actual shoe, and it's even, you, it's got the stitching going around the edge of it. And, and it was and, discovered by a geologist, so it's not like a... Yes. Yeah. yeah. And they and they're like, man, this okay. This is just a this is just a really good natural representation of what looks like a shoe, but it's it's <laughs> totally natural, <laughs> you know. And so then they then they get a lens out and they look at it, at the stitching closer, and the and you the rock the the lithified stitch thread itself, you can see the twists in the thread where the thread was actually manufactured. Like it's got all it's got the same twisting all the way all the way around. Oh wow. And it's like, yeah, this is a really good natural representation of what a <laughs> shoe looks like. <laughs> Down to the twisting of the thread. Yeah. Yep, they were they were saying it was the 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 most astounding <laughs> natural artifact that looks like a manufactured artifact ever found. And and of course and this, Go ahead. I'm just I just, you know, this kind of stuff you're like, okay. It, it, I, I don't know. I just I this is for me, I, I already am, am kind of just like open to the possibility that that we've got a, all these, you know, the time the timeline wrong and all this kind of stuff. But just some of the stuff, like that shoe being found somewhere way down deep in something, and it's 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 completely turned to stone. Yeah, it's yeah. just mind boggling to me. I'm just like, how do we not? Do we just maybe we don't understand the 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 processes that all of the possible processes of fossilization or or lithification. I don't right, know. It's right. just uh, Yeah, and that that's the other thing. I mean, we make a lot of assumptions about this stuff. Um, 
you know, about how coal is formed or how oil is formed. And yep. I know there's some debate as to how oil is actually formed. Yep, that's right. Is it, can it form abiotically? Is right. It, is a question. Yeah. I and think- most geologists will tell you absolutely not, right? I mean, uh, but there is a debate, but it's the people who think there's possi- a possibility for abiotic production of hydrocarbons, they're on the what would be considered the fringes. Right. Coal freaks me out because at least I, in the Western world, I, I think of like, you know, you take the Amazon rainforest and you set the entire thing on fire, and then you lay down a, an entire chunk of of crust on top of it, and then it and it's being compressed while it's on fire, and that's what turns it into coal. Yeah. You know, just like how does that even happen? Yeah. To begin with, because they're just they're just gigantic masses of organic materials that are basically that were burning when they were buried. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, huh. And I so mean, it just, yeah. Kind from, of from a cataclysmic viewpoint that, you know, makes more sense. Yeah. Yep. But the, you'll see arguments, geological arguments that say, well, you know, cause, cause I mean the way people make charcoal today, you know, if you're ma- if you want to make it, that's what you do. You, you get, you get a bunch of, of wood and you split it up into specifically sized pieces. You set them on fire very carefully so that they're kind of all burning evenly. And then you cover them in mud and you wait. Huh. I didn't realize that. That's interesting. Yeah. You wait a while and then eventually you 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 remove all the mud. And it's, I mean, very wet. You know, like think clay, like very wet clay. They just you completely cover, make a dome over the fire with clay and you wait. And then you take the clay apart and, you, and the wood has... Um, sort of slowly oven cooked inside this thing. And when you take it apart, it breaks into these perfect little cubic pieces that are charcoal that are now very dry and are ready to burn with, you know, with, uh, with much more heat than you could get from normal wood because you've gotten rid of all the moisture and, you know, but there's still burnable material in there. So one way to make charcoal is to take, uh, or one way to make big layers of coal is to take a lot of biomass, set it all on fire and then bury it in mud. But huh. you'll see geological arguments that say, well, you can replicate that process over millions and millions and millions of years by just slowly burying biomass under increasing amounts of sediment. And the pressure right. is what. Yes. Right. But it is possible. It's, that it's, many, like, a, it's like a mummification of a yeah. lot of biomass. You the pressure generates the heat. And yeah. then, yeah, yeah, you dry it. But, but it's possible that large cataclysmic events, if they've happened multiple times, can generate coal very quickly and also bury it under enormous amounts of material, you know, in a geological instant, in a matter of months or less. And then, and then you have like the the going into the Fortiana Range. You know, how many times Charles Fort pointed out frogs being found in coal veins? Oh yeah, that's yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and for- in the book, there's plenty. There's quite a few, you know, uh, interesting cases of golden chains. Uh, uh, like an iron cup, I think was found. Like the block thing that I mentioned, a a section of t- of stone tile that was engraved with a diamond pattern that had a bunch of faces, all the same faces in there, like a face of an old man, all looking in the same direction. Huh. Uh, all found in coal. Yeah. And then lots of quarries. You know, quarry where they're quarry. Like one of the most interesting ones to me when we were in the artifacts section was a story and this was published in a respectable i can't remember what it was as a you know journal of natural science or something like that but it was a, a you know 1800s 
So no one will accept this today, but right. quarrymen were working in uh, a particular quarry, and they were, I think it might have been France, I don't remember, they were building, rebuilding some building, the Palace of Justice, I think is what they said it was. I don't know where that is, but they were quarrying material out of a limestone quarry. And the quarry was basically set up where there would be a large, thick layer of limestone, and they would get through all of that, and then below that there would be a, a layer of sand, or pebbles, you know, or aggregate. And then below that would be more limestone, and they would dig through several feet of that, sometimes up to 10 feet of it. And they had gone down 10 of those levels of the limestone and sand. And then the bottom of that 11th layer of limestone, the very bottom of it, all the, all the limestone had shells and marine encrustations stuck to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then below that was more sand, and in the sand... Before they got to the next layer of limestone down, but in the sand, they found quarry tools and <laughs> remnants of pieces of columns that had been being quarried when, like, a lot by whoever a long time ago, you know, and then it was like presumably buried under multiple layers of limestone. One which, of the, the one just above it, which had marine encrustations on right, it. Right, right. Wow. Yeah. And they said that the quarry tools, many of which, you know, they, they were like, Typical quarry tools, wooden, like hammers and uh, other things with 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 handles and working parts of wood and quarry boards, uh, all of which had been turned into agate, uh, basically petrified and turned into like a jewel. Huh. <laughs> yeah, and it was like, okay, so what what can explain that? Either you say that someone was human using human style tools. So far back that it that eleven layers of limestone were able to build up on top of it after they were doing this work. Yeah. Or this is a cataclysm of some kind or multiple ones, and it isn't that far back. I just don't know. I mean, it could be but, mo- it could be both. I have no idea. But the, it, the the whole book is fascinating, and it just makes you think. Like, are we? What's wrong here? What's wrong with our yeah, story? Yeah. A lot, I think. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that bias toward we already know the answers is part of the problem. You tell me how the electric universe makes 11 limestone layers, man. <laughs> 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 have that, you heard of the electric universe? Have right? you ever heard of this theory? <laughs> <laughs> but that's, you know, but that's kind of the thing. Even a cataclysm, what's going to form 11 limestone layers? I know that's and and the the standard I, if I remember correctly because we live in on on limestone bedrock and there are solid chunk there are solid sections and then it and then it gets like gravelly and you know very brittle and sometimes sandy and clay and then there's another solid section yeah and I think that the explanation is that this is different levels of the sea right the the shallow seas would would rise and when the waters were deeper, the limestone would be more tightly packed and it would actually create like the solid limestone. And then the seas would recede. And then you have the more hackly sort of yeah. grainy stuff that's not very well um, cemented together. And then they would they would get deep again. And it's like back and forth and back and forth. So you have these layers built up over eons, you know. Yeah. And possibly like, you know, the inclusion of, say, volcanic ash. Right. Yeah. yeah. Into particular parts we'll of the deposition nice makes makes it cement together much better into stone yeah. versus others, and yeah. So, so it's hard to imagine how this this process 
could be done quickly for 11 layers yeah. Yeah. of thick lime. So that's just, I just don't, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but then again, excuse me, it's kind of like the uh, the missing 411 stuff. You know, where, where are these artifacts? Well, mm. yeah, they're gone. You know, we can't inspect them, so it's, you have to yeah, take the them sites, for their word. The site's gone, the artifacts are gone, and all we have are the reports. Well, and I mean, that's that's kind of what happens when you look at the discovery of giants. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, certainly some of them were probably newspapers, you know, just trying to, to bring in viewers, but there's plenty of stuff that's even listed in the Smithsonian that you can't look at. Yeah. That's right. And so yeah, some of them, you know, some of the accounts in the book, you know, I don't know what to do with it. I'm just like, well, and then other ones where they're very well documented and they're being heavily debated am amongst uh, well-respected scientists of the time. And uh, there's a lot of evidence put forth and the data, you know, those, those I'm like, wow, you know, this is, this is very convincing. Yeah. And it does seem like it was just thrown out because it didn't fit. Right, like it, it's yeah. In some cases, it's it's even so much as first the the discovery is made, and it's made by a competent scientist who's well respected by his peers in in that day, and then he brings out a couple of people to come look, and then they bring the evidence to like for example a conference or you know a meeting of like the 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 you know of a bunch of scientists or, or anthropologists or whatever looking at these kinds of things, and they show the evidence that they've found to these guys and then they're intrigued but they don't they're not quite buying it but they're intrigued and then they form like a group of them and they go back out to the site and they do more digging in a different spot and they find more artifacts you know and so it's like it's very well documented and and, and nevertheless it leaves the scientific literature over time mm -hmm. because it doesn't fit the model that's being built right right and I mean, that's, that's, I think a human thing, you know, it's yeah. not just scientists that do that. Everyone kind of does that. Oh, they, of course. They, you right. know. Yeah. We can't, can't, uh, can't say that it's just like, can't lay the blame on this just as scientists. You're right. It's absolutely human nature, but I think that science is kind of held up as something that is supposed to be a system that keeps people from doing that. Right. Yes, absolutely. And it should you know, be. It's like a whole follow the data thing. Yeah, yeah. And science science is a system that allows us to change our ideas if we find evidence that says our ideas are wrong, and yet we have example after example where that's not happening. I, I you, you have uh, Daryl Bem's work in Cornell where he, he's the one that showed that people responded to random images before the computer even picked the images. Oh, yeah. And it was peer-reviewed, it was replicated, and the response was kind of like, well, according to this, according to the standards we've set for this stuff over all these years that seem to work, uh, his, you know, he's showing this, this precognition. We know that doesn't exist, so maybe we need to re-examine our methodology. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's, it's, they can't accept it, accept it based on theoretical pre-considerations, and so... They throw out evidence which in any other situation would be considered solid. Right, right. Yeah, that's right. And, that, and that's... So, yeah, I think... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to... I think the, uh, the good news is that it seems like there's a growing number of people that are, that are um, 
like scientists uh, in the fields of um, archaeology or paleontology or geology that are taking a look at these things again. Um, not necessarily specifically the the cases in this in this book, but you know there are a lot of questions like like the fact that the Clovis first thing has has finally been uh, toppled is now changing a lot of the way people look at stuff and and um, you know there are uh, accredited geologists looking deeply into you know a lot of the stuff that Randall ha- is studying and asking these questions the same questions that Randall's been asking for thirty years. Um, so it 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 there is uh, progress in in that in that yeah yeah um, aspect. So um, I think that's good. And you're right. You make a really good point that this is, a lot of this is just human nature. It, it pointing the finger at scientists is not uh, the right thing to do. It's just science is supposed to be a process that is set up to uh, keep the human nature out of it. Right. But there's right. there's no way to make that perfect. Nope. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's a difficult thing, you know, and, and, and then you look at like the, all the issues Robert Schock had when, you know, he he dated the Sphinx geologically and not a single geologist disagreed with him, but the Egyptologists didn't change their, their data. That's right. Yeah. And even, even geologists knew once they realized what they were looking at, they're like, Ooh, yeah. 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 Don't know if I want to put my name on. Yeah. (laughs) But that none of them actually you know, dissent, you know, none of them dissented against Robert. I mean, they, they didn't say he was wrong. Right. You know, they didn't, yeah, the be, geological work seemed to be sound. More could be done, but it yeah. isn't, it's very dangerous. So it, well, it's dangerous because it rewrites, you know, archeology. span Right. Well, I, what I mean is it's dangerous for a geologist personally to engage in that work because it would ruin his career possibly. Sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Robert was actually brave enough to, to, you know, Put his name on the line. Only after he had tenure. Sure, yeah. sure. Which was good. Which, <laughs> which was, was a yeah. smart move. Yeah. <laughs> you cannot blame him for that. No, no absolutely not. Yeah. Because <laughs> didn't they try to revoke? No, it wasn't him that they tried to. Re- they tried to revoke John uh, Max. John Max. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, we talked about that in our last episode. Yeah, but we got some questions for people like, "How would you fix this problem?" <laughs> you know, if you were king of the world. <laughs> and you can't, but you can't change human nature. Is there a way where we can fix this issue? Um, I don't think there is. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, part of the problem is the scientific uh, process is so driven by grants. You know, like like it's not the money isn't just there. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. you have to kind of play ball in order to get the money to do the things that you really want to do, and sometimes you have to kind of. You know, you can maybe put that stuff out there, but you can't draw too much attention to it. And then, you know, slowly over time, people are like, hey, why did nobody talk about this? Yeah, and this is why it's a good thing that that people uh, of other backgrounds get involved. Yeah. Right? Because we all have skin in the game. Right? And, it's, and, and so people like um, Graham Hancock, you know, he gets involved in this, in this, in these ideas, he writes about it. He's, he's a writer. Uh, but then, then you have the, the problem of, uh, the accusation of pseudoscience, right? He, yeah. he was never claiming to do science. Right. Right. He was, he was claiming to be a journalist. Yeah. And asking questions and asking questions. That's not doing science. That's just, you know, just being a curious person and a good writer. 
And uh, but but they use that and that that I don't know. That's just a sort of a pet peeve, I guess, because I think that it's good that people like Michael Cremo um, or or Graham Hancock get involved in these in these um, situations and and write about them, categorize them, you know, document them in a way that is presentable to to the public uh, so that we can all ask the questions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it and it hopefully generates a new interest and in, uh, a new set of scientists. Exactly. Like, for example, like you brought up last night, Mark Young, you know, who was like, I started looking at Graham Hancock, and then I got interested in Randall stuff, and now he's in school for archaeology and and geology, and he's there because of those interests. You yeah. know, yeah. he's he's following the dream. He's like, I I love these ideas. I'm interested in these ideas, and I'm going to go to school and get, you know, get credentialed. So I can look at these ideas from a professional standpoint. Right. And hopefully not get blackballed out of the, you know, profession. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and the other problem I think too, is that you have, you know, like you have people who are very, who only study one thing. And this, this is a, this is across the board. Yes. I mean, you have, everyone's a specialist, but very few people are multidisciplinary. That's right. Compartmentalization and, of knowledge. Yeah, and whereas that's great that some people are experts, that's very useful. It's also useful to have a wider view of it. I remember uh, in one of the uh, Lost is it the Lost City series from uh, David Hatcher Childress, he's talking about being in South America and how you know if he didn't know where he was, he would maybe think he was in China looking at some of these artifacts. Oh and, yeah, and he said something to the woman who went. Well, I don't study that stuff. You know, I, I wouldn't even look right. at that stuff. That's not my field. And, you know, he's like, but maybe it should be because there's a similarity here that you can't ignore. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we need great specialists and great generalists. Yeah, yeah. Both looking at it. So you got the bigger picture and the the macro and the micro. Yeah. So we're, we're out of time. Yeah. Oh. Time flies in the cube. That's right. <laughs> so we're going to do a Patreon segment, but where can people find your wonderful podcast? Well, the on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> Are we arranging to send a piece of it to the moon? Uh, yeah. Uh, Brothers of the is where you can find all the podcast related stuff. And of course the podcast as an RSS feed is available anywhere. Podcasts can be found like Apple podcasts and uh, on Spotify and everything like that. Brothers right. of the serpent. So that's your wonderful podcast. Where can people find the podcast you don't want them hearing? The really bad ones. <laughs> the terrible podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we, uh, we don't have a terrible podcast, but we do have another one we do with Randall Carlson. Oh, that's so true. If, that's that's yeah, also so a if, wonderful podcast, though. Yeah, so if anybody is interested in Randall's work and hearing Kyle and I be very dumb while listening to Randall, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hard to, to sound smart when you're when you're dealing with that guy. Uh, you can look up Cosmographia. That's Cosmographia with a K. And you can find everything about that at RandallCarlson.com. But really, the, the, the terrible podcast is you can look up uh, Brothers of the Serpent Archive, oh. <laughs> which is like which is all the oldest episodes in the, yeah. in the RSS feed. Yeah. And that's the terrible podcast. Yeah, yeah. On the, okay, so on our website, we do have the archive section. And I built basically a a static feed that has all the old shows in it. So that's where oh. the terrible version of the podcast is. <laughs> <laughs> the first 50 episodes where we, where we swore every other word and you know how it is. So. All right. Awesome. Thank you guys. Yeah. Hey, thanks thanks for having us, man. And I want to take a moment here to thank all of my Patreons. 
Seriously, you people are the lifeblood of this show. And I want to give a special shout-out to those pledging $10 or more. Allison Cook, Super Inframan, Eric Hervin, Tim, The 100th Monkey Project, Ad Noctum, Patricia Gaiaquinta, Alex Whitcomb, Alfred Tuttle, American Rambler, Andy McNamara, Barbara Fisher, Beverly Williamson, Big Boy Limina, Charles Davis, Chris Ernst, Craig Parmenter, David Moore, Denise Sarek, Dominic O'Malley, Edu Camahort, MTK, Eric Citron, J. Otto Bullet, John Bracken, Eric Todd, James Lattimore, Puck Brother, Joanna Rojas, Jose A., Carla Mahoney, Kevin, Kristen L., Kevin Schreck, Linz Jackson K., Luke Osborne, Jim and Sophie, Mark Bowley, Mark Brady, Matthew Sproul, Maddie, Nagatha Christie, Patricia W., Ray Benedetto, Riker and Stark, Roger Gonzalez, Sam Sheeran, Sedgder, Stone Wilderness, Tactical Therapist, Taylor, 36 Dingo, Vincent Trewell, Walker, Will Powell, William Lovelace, and Ren Collier. Thank you all so very much. So, of course, there is a Patreon segment to go along with this. It's also a pretty long show, so it's almost like getting another show with these guys. And uh, that will be up later in the week for Patreons. And a big thank you to all of you who are already Patreons. If you'd like to help support the show and get a bunch of extra content, you can go to wheretheroadgo.com and click on the Patreon link. All right, that's all I have for you for right now, so we will see you next time. You have been listening to Where Did the Road Go? This show is made possible in part from our Patreons, and we thank you and everyone listening for helping us continue this exploration of the strange. You can always find everything Where Did the Road Go related at www.wheredidtheroadgo.com And thank you so much for your support. <laughs>